At the end of May, when I was last in this pulpit, so to speak, I said, the next time Nancy and I are here, we will have come home. Things have changed a little bit in the last month, but we're still family. We're still home. So I want to encourage you this morning to uh, listen well as we dip into the family story again together, this amazing 11th chapter of the book of Acts, where we will be guided in our learning and in our believing by the one Jesus just named in the gospel, the helper. The Greek word is the paraclete, literally, the one who is called alongside. And so I rest assured and I encourage you to rejoice in the sheer knowledge that Right alongside all of us this morning as we dive into God's Word together is that paraclete, that helper, that comforter, that same Holy Spirit who comes alongside to strengthen our faith. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful people. Set us on fire with your love. Where we are weak, Lord, make us strong. Where we are timid, make us bold. Where we are confused, make us clear. And we are, where we are dour, Lord, fill us with your joy, the joy no one can take away. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get into this 11th chapter, we're, we're going to spend most of our time in the second half of the chapter, but let me, let me just retrace our steps from these past several weeks. Um, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 19 says, those who had been scattered by the persecution. Remember that? Remember how back in chapter 8, we heard about Stephen's execution. Uh, ever since then, uh, Aubrey has been reminding us, echoing for us this, this drumbeat message that our witness as today as God's people throughout history is a suffering witness. He, he's called it several times a cruciform, a cross-shaped witness. It's no different for us. Luke tells us that a great persecution arose in Jerusalem. Saul ravaged the church. That sentence alone says all we need to know. House by house, he grabbed people, men and women, threw them into prison. And then suddenly, cataclysmically, one chapter later, that same Saul is knocked to the ground by the risen Lord Jesus. The Lord sends Ananias. Chapter 8, verse, verse 17 says, so that you, Saul, may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Saul was baptized. And immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus. Jesus is the Son of God, he said. Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. The same Saul, who had been ravaging the church in Jerusalem, now proclaiming Jesus as Lord in the synagogues in Damascus, until he had to escape for his very life, snuck out of town, over the wall, back to Jerusalem. Imagine you were one of those disciples in Jerusalem when Saul shows up. The last time you saw him, he was gloating at the, cruci- at the death of Stephen, at the stoning of Stephen, overseeing the persecution of the church, and now he's back, professing to be one of them, a disciple. 
Needless to say, in, in colossal understatement, Luke says the disciples there were afraid. They didn't trust the authenticity of his conversion. By the end of chapter 9, we see him rescued again. This time, not rescued out of town, but rescued by a heretofore only once mentioned disciple, Barnabas. Luke simply says, Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He spoke and disputed against the Greek speakers. They sought to kill him. We only know Barnabas because in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, he was briefly named. His name was Joseph, sometimes called Barnabas in this little parenthesis that Luke throws in, which becomes all critical in today's chapter 11. Joseph, otherwise known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And what do we know from the beginning? All we're told by Luke is that Barnabas took the proceeds of the sale of his real estate and put it at the feet of the apostles. In in contrast to others about whom we've heard, who didn't get the stewardship message and were put to death on the spot. Barnabas takes Saul, brings him to the disciples, presents him as one of their own, a believer. And then, three verses later, it says the brothers brought him down to Caesarea. They took him from there by sea to Tarsus, his hometown. And then for a while, Saul disappears from the story. We think it may have been seven or eight years that he did ministry quietly, unheard of, in his hometown of Tarsus. Meanwhile, Verse 31, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. People were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied. And then last week we heard in chapter 10 uh, this wonderful story, this this first little foray into Gentile territory. There in Caesarea, that that beautiful um, uh, imperial city on the seacoast, still visible today in, in much of its early splendor, its It's uh, still a resort town. Benjamin Netanyahu lives in Caesarea when it's too hot in Jerusalem. There in chapter 10, we read that Peter had a vision. And as a result of that vision, the first Gentile comes to faith, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. The conversion of one Gentile. And Luke says the Gentiles begin to hear the good news. And the Holy Spirit is poured out, falling on the Gentiles, and many are baptized. And the Jewish believers are, I love this sentence, the Jewish believers are amazed. When you heard that last week, did that catch anybody's attention? Why in the world were they amazed? Did they not remember Ascension Day? When Jesus said the gospel will be proclaimed first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Did you forget that part, folks? Or did they forget, and ne- or had they never read Genesis 12, the promise of God to Abraham that through him and his seed all the nations would be blessed? Had they forgotten that? They were amazed. One Gentile comes to faith in Caesarea, Cornelius. 
But no one has yet acted strategically on that. No one has taken the gospel to the Gentiles as a group, not until we get to chapter 11. Peter has to defend his actions. That's the the level of amazement of the apostles back in Jerusalem. Peter has to defend his actions to his brothers. He has to defend having brought a Gentile to faith. But now, without further ado, we get to verse 19 in chapter 11, where we read that those who had been scattered by the persecution, some of them, went to Phoenicia, that is Lebanon, to Cyprus, to Antioch, to Antioch. That's where we're going to hang out today. Some of them, some of them went beyond their brief, their assignment. They followed Peter's example, and they said, well, if Cornelius can come to faith, other Gentiles can hear the gospel too. And so some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Antioch, the third city of the empire, It was called the beautiful city, or it was often called the queen of the east because it was a multicultural city. There were were immigrants in Antioch from from Persia and and China. I mean, you could get great Chinese food in Antioch in the first century. And so Antioch is where we're going to stay put the rest of this morning. And I want to do that around three points. Number one. Growing churches is God's business. Secondly, growing churches is centrally the business of encouragement. And third, encouragement is our business. So follow with me. First of all, growing churches is God's business. The center of gravity in chapter 11, as is the center of gravity in the entire book of Acts, though we call it the Acts of the Apostles, the center of gravity is God. The Lord is the subject and object, the source and the goal of everything that happens. In other words, mission is not so much in the first place what the church does, but what God does through the church. And we've seen that throughout our study of Acts. We saw right at the beginning that Acts is the continuation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's volume two. It's what God is doing now in the power of the Holy Spirit, post-resurrection, in the lives of these men and women. Growing churches is God's business. We read in chapter 11 that the church is not only founded by God's hand. That's that wonderful phrase. It means God's power. The church in Antioch has been founded by God's hand, established by God's grace. It grows numerically through God's work, through God's agents. But time again, time and time again, Luke says, you've heard this phrase before, the Lord added to their number. The Lord added to their number those who believed and were being saved. The church in Antioch is not only established by God's grace, not only grows numerically through God's work, but it's indwelt by God's very spirit. In other words, simply put, what goes on in Antioch is God's work. Growing churches is God's business. And guess what? He's good at it. He plants churches in the least likely places. I mean, look around you. An auto parts store on the edge of Harrisonburg. Among all of you 
who never could have imagined yourselves coming together as the family of God in this place. And all that began in Antioch. It's God's work. How does God establish, how does God plant churches? Through the preaching of the Lord Jesus by ordinary believers. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 11 don't even name the people who brought the gospel to Antioch. They're not famous. They're not named. We can't thank them. We can't praise them. They simply did what they thought they were supposed to do. In the wake of a horrific persecution, having witnessed the suffering of fellow saints, they went, these people who left homes and families, no doubt, went to Antioch and planted a church. Their essential message was this. Jesus is Lord. I don't think that message is any less timely today than it was then, is it? I mean, when you read the news this week and as you will read the news this coming week, you and I need to be reminded of nothing else than this. Jesus is Lord. Not anyone else. Not anything else. The essential message that Jesus is Lord is attested by these facts that Jesus was crucified and he rose again, he's alive. And that essential message has living, vibrant implications for us. Jesus offers us forgiveness and Jesus changes lives. You're here because your life has been forever changed by the message that Jesus is Lord and that he loves you and that he forgives you, that he's poured his spirit into you. Growing churches is God's business. He's really good at it. He did it in Antioch. He did it in Harrisonburg. He did it in Elkton. He'll do it in Crozet or Charlottesville. He'll do it in Stanton. He's doing it all over, planting one more church after another. And all of that, we're all here because of the faithful witness of unnamed ordinary believers who proclaimed that Jesus is Lord in the city of Antioch in the first century. Now, it's not enough, you know this, it's not enough just to plant churches, just to get things going. Growing churches is God's business, but growing churches, once they're planted, is centrally all about encouragement. And I'm guessing that we don't all have a clear fix on what Luke means by that word, encouragement. Verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of that, the report of all those converted Gentiles reached Jerusalem. Gentile, communities of Christians coming into being, that was a newsflash. And remember how disturbed the apostles were when Peter came back from Caesarea and announced that one Gentile had been converted? You can imagine the uproar in Jerusalem among the apostles when they get word that there are Gentile believers who've given birth to the first Gentile church. There's a whole community of them up in, up in Antioch. The report reached Jerusalem. The first thing they did was to send, Ant, uh, to send Barnabas up to Antioch. They felt a responsibility to check things out. 
to guide and nurture the new life in Christ that these Gentile believers were finding. They sent Barnabas to Antioch for pastoral work. Verse 23 says, Barnabas came, and he saw the grace of God. I think this is what he saw. I think it's clear when you read the text that this is what he saw. He saw what Peter had seen happen to Cornelius. What the apostles had seen happen on Pentecost in Jerusalem. He saw people whose lives were turned upside down, whose, whose very character was changed dramatically, who now worshipped the living God, who now had a grasp on grace. They'd experienced it. Their lives were changed utterly. Barnabas was sent first to evaluate. This was kind of an accreditation mission, if you will. He was sent to look for evidence of the grace of God. It's a quality control trip. He was sent by people who probably were somewhat suspicious, maybe even negative about the innovation of evangelizing Gentiles. They just weren't sure about this whole enterprise yet. They still weren't convinced. So they sent Barnabas, and Barnabas saw the grace of God And he was glad. He was filled with joy. And on the basis of that joyous affirmation, he set out to, Luke tells us, encourage. He exhorted them. Yeah, exhorted, that that, that sounds like an angry word in English. Um, It's not. He taught them joyfully and with encouragement to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Encouragement is Bible business. Okay. So follow with me. Growing churches is God's business. Central to that mission of growing churches is encouragement, and encouragement is Bible business, if it's nothing else. Barnabas' encouragement produced people who remained true to the Word of God. His encouragement produced endurance. And if you want to check that out, that's what encouragement looks like all over the New Testament. In Romans 15, Paul, who we see a little bit of today, says that the Word of God generates hope. That's what encouragement is, he says. The encouraging ministry of the Word produces hope. In Colossians 1, Paul says he encourages people to continue steadfastly Not shifting from the word you have heard. That's what Paul says is encouragement. At the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 3, the believers facing persecution yet again are told to hold fast to what you have been given. Again and again and again, believers in Christ are encouraged by a reminder to hold fast to the word of God which has changed their lives which will sustain them, which alone will sustain them in the face of what's coming. The word encouragement is a, is a fascinating word. Um, it's, I said before, in defining the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we encountered in today's gospel, the word is parakaleo. It means to, to call alongside, to come near, to identify closely, to mold, motivate and build confidence, to create endurance. Paul will later on in 1 Thessalonians 
defined the ministry of these early Christians this way. He said, encourage one another and build one another up. Come alongside to build up. That's encouragement. Come alongside to build up. That's what Barnabas did. On the tale of the early unnamed evangelists who brought the gospel to Antioch, now Barnabas steps in and says, it's time to encourage. It's time to build up. It's time to nurture. It's time to do pastoral care, we call it. It's not the same as evangelism. It's not the same as discipleship and teaching. It's affirming, confirming, supporting, coaching, consoling. It's cheering. Without encouragement, we'll never do evangelism. Discipleship will go nowhere. We all need to be encouraged. And they chose exactly the right guy for the job. Barnabas, who you remember already had this nickname, son of encouragement. He's, we're told in, in verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He was wise and generous. And he began a teaching ministry to build up God's people. Teaching, not so much in the sense of, of prophetic teaching, you know, challenging, convicting teaching, but more we would say as Anglicans, priestly teaching, giving a word of encouragement, reminding people how to continue on the pathway that the Holy Spirit had begun in their lives. Barnabas' ministry was first evaluation, looking around, inspecting. Uh, That's important. Every year the bishop comes to visit. Um, he's there on a kind of inspection tour. It's not to see, it's not so much to make sure that the, that the, that the troops are in order. It's, it's to see the evidence of God's grace. That's what I'll get to do every time I come back. I'll get to see what I anticipate is happening. To see the evidence of God at work among the people of Harrisonburg in and through this church, Church of the Incarnation. And then to report that. The bishop comes to see that. I come to see that. Not, not so much because we weren't quite sure it was going on. We come to see what we know is going on so that we can tell others and encourage them and so that we can encourage you to stay at it, to keep doing what you're doing. Evaluation and then encouragement. I love the shape of Barnabas' encouragement in this, in this 11th chapter. I mean, just follow with me <clears throat> and look at, the, look at the facets of his encouragement. Uh, if you aren't convinced by now, encouragement is not just a little pat on the back and a little pep talk saying, you know, go get him. That's, that's weenie. I mean, that's, that's nothing. That doesn't help you. That's a platitude. It's not encouragement. It's not biblical encouragement. So look at, look at the shape of encouragement in the ministry of Barnabas. He found Saul and brought him to Antioch. We don't know what was going on in Saul's life or ministry in those hidden years in Tarsus. But here's Barnabas, the assigned leader on the scene in Antioch, and what does he do? He finds Saul. He goes to Tarsus, finds him, and brings him to Antioch. Barnabas is the leader. Barnabas is the one who has clout with the apostles back in Jerusalem. 
And what does he do? He makes this incredible, encouraging move. He clears the way for Saul. Um, a colleague of mine likens it to this familiar scene. Um, you're, the, you're the lonely, nobody-talks-to, nerdy kid in the cafeteria of the high school. A scary place to be, a scary thing to be. It's your first day, and you look out at this array of people, and you can already see instinctively that everybody's sort of grouped up with their friends. And all of a sudden, an arm comes across your shoulder, and you look up, and it's the high school quarterback, you know, who is God. And he says, hi, my name is, you want to have lunch? And he just walks in with this kid who is scared to death, who's quivering, and just says, he's with me. That's essentially what, what Barnabas does with Saul. He puts his arm around Saul, brings him back from Tarsus, brings him into the midst of, of this new church in Antioch, and says, he's, he's with me. That kind of encouragement between Barnabas and Saul will go on for chapters. I'm not sure where my fellow preachers are going to go with you these next few weeks, but, but just kind of anticipate where this story goes and how it unfolds. In chapter 13, you'll see Barnabas journeying with now Paul. At some point, unobtrusively, the story, which has heretofore been about Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul suddenly shifts, and now we read about Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Until chapter 15, when they have a disagreement. Barnabas disagrees with Paul. Uh, even that, by the way, is encouragement. We'll, we'll say it's, it's, it's salty encouragement. It's encouragement by challenging. Barnabas, even at this difficult juncture where he wants to take his cousin John Mark, and, and Paul is turned off of John Mark. John Mark had bailed on them at one critical juncture, and he wants to leave him, but he wants nothing more to do with him. You know, Paul is, is if, and he's intrepid, he's, he's bold, he, he's a decisive guy, you know, he's not gentle. He wants to just have nothing more to do with John Mark. Barnabas is saying, no, we need him, I, I want to take him along, and, and it just says that they had a sharp disagreement. Because you see, Barnabas is also John Mark's encourager. And he wants, he wants Paul to have a larger perspective than he has at this point in time. So, Paul wants to have a ministry of encouragement too, but he didn't want to take John Mark. So Barnabas and John Mark go off to Cyprus. And oh, by the way, you don't have to worry too much about John Mark and how he ends up because he writes the Gospel of Mark. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas go about encouraging the churches in Syria and Cilicia. But before all that unfolds, I love and I want to lift up for focus the encouragement displayed by Barnabas in building a ministry team. Not only does he, not only does he evaluate the church in Antioch, not only does he come and see the evidence of God's grace, and not only does he encourage them 
teaching them for a full year with Silas at his side, I, I, I interpret that as this is, this is kind of final training for, for Silas before he really becomes, or for, for Saul rather, because, before he becomes Paul and really launches forth. But there's a third, there's a third thing which I read as an aspect of encouragement. Barnabas built a team to develop new leadership. Think about the remarkable humility of Barnabas to share his ministry with Saul. Remember, at this point in time, Barnabas is the only mature leader in Antioch in the face of hordes of adoring new believers. And his ministry... Luke tells us his ministry, Barnabas' ministry, not evangelistic ministry, which has already borne fruit and planted a church, but his ministry of encouragement is bearing even more enormous fruit. And still, he goes and fetches Saul. Instead of consolidating his own preeminence, Barnabas seeks out Saul, a man he knows is multi-gifted, extremely talented, more talented, as history would prove, than Barnabas himself. Barnabas knows that his ministry will not multiply if he holds on to it and becomes a bottleneck. So he seeks out a man who will ultimately outshine him. Why did Barnabas seek out Saul? He knew his talent. He knew about his cosmopolitan education. He knew that Saul was a natural for a sophisticated, multi-ethnic city like Antioch. He knew that Saul possessed the kind of mind needed to keep pace with an exploding missionary church. Maybe, just maybe, Barnabas also knew about Saul's original calling to go to the Gentiles. Remember how at his conversion, Jesus said about Saul... He is my chosen instrument. And close on the heels of that conversion, he was preaching in Damascus. Barnabas is a great model of ministry. He knows his limitations. He humbly shares his ministry with potential leaders like Saul. He doesn't work alone but in a team. He doesn't hold on to ministry but raises up new leaders and and gives his responsibility away. That's encouraging. So as we come to a finish, be reminded of this. Growing churches is God's business. At the core of growing churches is a ministry of encouragement, which is a Bible ministry, a teaching ministry, a hope-instilling ministry, a team-building ministry, a humble ministry of getting out of the way so that others with the requisite gifts can come into the foreground and shine. At the end of it all, encouragement, though, is not just Barnabas's business. It's our business. Encouragement is so important for newer believers. But it's also just as important for those of us who've been at this a long time and are going through difficult times. 
Sometimes those who are disobedient, um, it's, it's funny, uh, Paul says he calls them busybodies. They're idle. They're not doing anything for the cause of Christ except criticizing how others are doing it. Even sometimes those who are disobedient respond better to encouragement rather than to warning. But here's, I think, the, the, the classic verse that describes how encouragement is all our business. Hebrews 3, verse 13. The writer to the Hebrews says, Encourage one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's your assignment for the week. Encourage one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a lot at stake there. And the Lord Jesus, through his paraclete, his helper, his comforter, his divine encourager, would have you be an encourager and a hoper, not someone who falls prey to the deceitfulness of sin. I think you can think about churches this way. Most of the time, the problems we have as individual believers or as congregations are aggravated because we don't have encouragers. Sometimes we don't get encouragement because we're too proud to seek it or let people know we need it. So my encouragement to you today is to be willing to meet and make yourselves vulnerable to each other in order to receive encouragement from God through your brothers and sisters. Our duty is to look around and notice who needs encouragement. We need more Barnabases. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.